Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Spencer Bogart of Blockchain Capital and Brayden Williams of Boost VC. Spencer, uh, Brayden, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So guys, we're going to get into a lot of the meaty topics, but I sort of want to start high level, which is you, you guys have been investing in the space in, in crypto and blockchain for, for quite some time. Uh, why don't you give a little bit of a sort of high level, where are we in 2020? Where, uh, how has that evolved uh, since you guys have been doing it. Brayden, you've been going even longer, so why don't you go first? Yeah, so I was actually going to say, I think this is a interesting situation where I think Boost VC was the first to kind of dedicate a sector of investing to Bitcoin, but Blockchain Capital was the first to dedicate a whole fund to kind of the sector. I think that sounds right, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we started in 2013 uh, investing in Bitcoin and crypto. So we've seen kind of a lot emerge and I would say both Spencer and I are fairly on the Bitcoin train, if yeah. you will. It's the only thing that I think has stayed tried and true since the very beginning. And I as, think as opposed to people like Adreesen or Polychain or something like draw a map, you know, of like who, who's on the other side. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, the thing that made the most sense for this technology that came out was kind of decentralization, what's what's very important to be decentralized and money was the first use case. So money was like more importantly store of value. And I think that store of value is what everyone has kind of been running to win. And yeah. Bitcoin has, again, stayed the tried and true where a bunch of people have tried to make a better money or kind of what we can jump into later is like this web three. Yeah. And that's kind of, we see today, at least the financial applications around Bitcoin as definitely the ones that have, What's working? So I'd say the on and off ramps, the exchanges, the storage, um, all around Bitcoin is working really well. And those companies are making really good money. So your Coinbase's and Binance's of the world. Uh, and then you have a lot of what we would say in the Ethereum or others, the DeFi, a lot more experimental still. Yeah. And we're not seeing these uh, kind of user bases emerge yet. But that's what we're kind of excited about is like the next generation. Yeah. And I mean, Spencer, why don't you put some context on... You know, where are we right now? Like, what are you investing in 2020 that you wouldn't have invested in 2017 or 2018 or vice versa? What are you not investing in 2020 that you were investing in mm -hmm. a few years ago? Well, so to put a little bit of context on here, I mean, I think the big shift right now, I mean, I do this whole thing where I go through kind of like five eras of Bitcoin. I, I'll save you the time from doing that right now. But, you know, the the last two of those five eras. So, okay, fine. I'll go through them real quick. The, the Bitcoin won't work era, the tulips and criminals era. Um, you can imagine that that first one is Bitcoin's just not going to work. Tulips and criminals was the stuff's all associated. It's only going to be useful for criminals. And by the way, the stuff reminds me of tulips. It's all going to crash and it's going to disappear. Sure enough, after kind of that era, Bitcoin did kind of crash, came down from a thousand and people said, see, I, I told you so. Um, and then we entered the kind of blockchain, not Bitcoin era. This is all by enterprise blockchain, et cetera. Um, and then we entered the horizontal competition era, which was kind of 2017 through kind of 2019, yeah. um, which was, Hey, we all realized that. Um, it's not enterprise blockchain that's maybe the the big game changer here. It's these big open public permissionless networks um, and that the crypto assets attached to them are actually extremely critical. Um, so everyone said, okay, that's fine. That's great. We're all finally on the same page there. But listen, Bitcoin's the 1.0. So let's all go launch things that are optimized on one particular feature set. So it could be privacy, expressiveness, um, throughput. 
Um, and so we've seen, you know, many chains like launched over the past kind of two years. Um, and then I'd say that brings us to the era that I think we're just kind of entering now, which is a shift from this kind of horizontal competition era of, Hey, let's all go launch a better blockchain to the vertical construction era which is building on top of the protocols that are winning. Um, so I think that right now that basically looks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, so, you know, things that I wouldn't have done, I, I expected some of that developer momentum to materialize sooner. Um, and now what I'm seeing is that um, the rewards are not as great. They're still pretty significant for going and launching a new blockchain, but that there's not the same kind of investor appetite to continue to fund these when none of them are showing any traction. I mean, we've seen a lot of these launched over the past year none of them have really generated any meaningful kind of developer traction or user traction. Um, so I think if you're going to build something that you want to be used, which I don't know why else you'd be building, um, build it on top of the chains that have users and traction. Yeah, we had a couple of years where everyone thought they were going to build a better Bitcoin, a better Ethereum. And still we sit here today and Bitcoin, Ethereum are the ones that are being used. They've been It's no easy task to launch a public chain for many reasons. And we're seeing basically a lot of People raise a bunch of money, money's running out, and there's nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. And for better or worse, I mean, honestly, the regulatory environment has kind of created a, a mini moat for the Bitcoins yeah. and Ethereums of the world. It's just harder to launch a new chain today and to do that in a compliant way. Um, I think those two benefited from relative obscurity at the time and being able to grow in a very organic fashion, yeah. whereas now for every new chain launch, there's so much attention focused on it that they don't kind of get that same benefit. What happens to all these projects that raise so much money? Some of them, I guess, just die. Maybe you were alluding to some, but what, what about the ones that raised a lot of money? <laughs> that is, like, what happens to them? So uh, I'd say there's a range of in the ICO phase of like maybe a million to 100 million plus, but say there's a sweet spot of 10 to 20 million. What we're seeing now is they basically raised it in 2017, 2018. They built up their teams. They had large marketing budgets. Got Lambos. They got Lambos. They focused on kind of the price, uh, token price on the various exchanges. They spent a lot on legal fees, a lot on like, you know, regulatory squint your eyes. It looks okay area, but there's no traction. There's no user base of any. So they, they built a company before they knew what they were building for. And I think this is like one of the biggest problems in crypto now is we're kind of readjusting, kind of taking a step back and go, okay, money doesn't come out of thin air. Yeah. The physics behind building a startup are still exactly the same. You have to go talk to a customer. So we're like, you know, we're investors in a bunch of token projects that are now going, okay, what did we spend the last two years doing? Uh, let's start from first principles, first principles, step one, what are, what problem are we solving? Yeah. And it's weird to have conversations with companies that have raised 10, 15, $20 million. And they're in the same exact spot as two founders showing up trying to raise that first 150 K. Yeah. And a lot of them raised with this idea, you know, they raised a lot of that money with the idea that, hey, we're going to build a big developer fund, right? And we can pay people to come and build on us. So we'll make our own traction here, basically. I think it's turned out that's a not as easy of a playbook as people originally thought. Um, the people who are the best builders in the space want to build something that is going to be durable and yeah. used for a long time. And therefore, they have limited time and capital to, to spend and spending it building on a chain that they don't believe is going to have a lot of traction going forward is not a particularly right. promising opportunity, even if you dangle free ca a, a yeah. carrot of like some free capital in front yeah, of it. Yeah, I was going to say another thing that didn't work out at all was airdrops. Right. Uh, we basically, it was, besides the ecosystem funds, we thought, or many, you know, many people in the industry thought, you know, give some tokens to some a developer based on this airdrop and they will start building 
but people realize these airdrops turned into basically spamming yeah. Ethereum addresses and no one did anything. So the economic incentive totally proved to be false. Yeah. I remember Kasamani had this post about like the, the smart contract war, platform wars rivaling sort of the smartphone wars or maybe some other types of war. Like, and none of them won or like what's, what's the, how has that played out or how do we make sense of smart contract platform wars or has it not even begun? Probably still some way. I mean, that's a tough question. I'd say that we've seen some evidence that those smart contract wars will not be as challenging as what people thought. And I think we could have learned from history a little bit on that. I mean, Bitcoin comes around, people start to create a whole bunch of better Bitcoins. All of them fail to gain traction. Ethereum starts to gain traction. Everyone says, hey, I'm going to build a better Ethereum. And then sure enough, what do you get the same outcome? Um, At least so far. Look, there's still a lot of projects that are going to launch. Maybe one of them is going to be a game changer. Like I'm never going to count out that option. We absolutely track the market very closely to see if that's going to be the case. But um, so far, I mean, we usually analogize these things to most of the new kind of fancy smart contract chains launching as ghost cities. Um, and that there's nothing wrong with them per se. Like they're great. They're actually quite beautiful and people could live there, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, uh, another analogy I like to use is Ethereum built the most basic thing possible for a smart contract platform. It was like a basic calculator. You can do very few things with it, but it was enough to get people experimenting and trying. Whereas a lot of these other smart contract platforms are trying to build the iPhone 10 basically day one. And they spend all this time. And it's like too complicated and people don't know what to do with it. So I think Ethereum got it right definitely by just launching something. Again, as you build a startup, the way to do it is you launch something, get someone to try it and iterate on that. Um, And I think, again, when you get a bunch of money in your hands and you don't know what else to do, you just build, build, build. So it's a lot of technologists over theorizing a bunch of uh, problems that people don't have. Yeah. And, you know, if we were doing this podcast in 2017, this would probably have a different tenor. I'm, I'm curious if... Like looking back in hindsight, obviously 2020, is this, are you guys surprised at how, how, how it's played out so far? Is this sort of, you know, just on the S curve or I don't know which curve it is, like just pretty natural in terms of where we would be? How, how do you guys make sense of what's happened? I would say I'm like beyond excited for, I don't know about you, but when I got involved, bought my first Bitcoin in 2012, I would never have thought I would reach $8,000. Yeah, no, I get the, 20, <laughs> I get the 2012, but 2017 comparison. 2017, I think everyone who had been in it for a while knew, like the entrepreneurs who had been in it for a while, I'd go around and it was kind of a moment of, you would just laugh with each other because it was so unreal. (laughs) Um, And because we're not a 100% crypto fund, you know, we would see our, we'd compare our crypto startups with our, you know, regular sector startups. And there was a huge disconnect, you know, you know, the physics again around building a startup doesn't change. The money isn't easier because you're a crypto company. So I think everyone, for the most part, saw it dying down. Like another aspect of this is it's still so, so early. You know, I was thinking about the the recently a uh, report came out for how many people work in crypto startups. And it was like 20,000 people. 140,000 people work at Oracle alone. And the price of Bitcoin today, uh, I think the market cap is what, $175 billion. And that's not that many people working in the space. So we have a, like a long way to go. And when you're battling after the store of value decentralized money, like it's huge. So we have so much further to go. So that's why like, I'm extremely excited. Yeah. Yeah. 2017. I mean, when I entered the venture space doing exclusively focused on this space, I did not expect 2017 to happen. I thought this is going to be a 
really slow grind and there's going to be great investment opportunities, but you know what? This stuff's going to take a really long time and people are just going to continue doubting it. Never expected to see that level of kind of hype and euphoria yeah. going on. And you would think that that would, you know, the, I guess, general euphoric environment around the industry would percolate into our firm, but really it caused like a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of unease associated with it. It was, you know, feels like things are getting way ahead of themselves, but also the music's playing. So like, do we need to dance? Um, fortunately, you know, again, and, and Brayton feel the same way, but, you know, structured as long-term investors, you're not as drawn towards those kind of hype cycles as yeah. I think a lot of the hedge funds that formed over that year really got pulled into it and kind of like take, take a step aside and say, look, we have a four-year deployment cycle here, so we can kind of wait out and see the other side. Right. It was just a question of how long. Yeah. And you don't have LPs trying to withdraw their money. Nope. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who maybe shot themselves in the foot right. starting a hedge fund. Yep. It was so decisively hedge fund was the wrong structure. It's just not aligned with the stage of the industry right now. It's the, the industry is still very early on. And I think you need long-term, you need long-term backers, long-term investment. Well, it also it, depends because we, I would say crypto as a kind of crypto funds, when people went around pitching LPs, everyone's trying to do everything in within one fund. Like what we do investing in startups and long-term kind of bets is very different than what a hedge fund does. So there's a lot of people, a lot of hedge funds that are doing extremely well with a hedge fund model because they're actively trading, you know, but that's not where we're playing. So that's why I think there's a huge, again, disconnect between kind of what a venture fund should do and what a hedge fund should do. And the models make sense for what they do, but you can't take one to the other. Totally. But were you suggesting that hedge fund makes more, more sense when the industry is more mature or is that not necessarily true? I think even today, there could be a place for both. Um, I just think that it's wrong for any, any kind of company in the space to look to a hedge fund as a source of long-term yeah. capital. Um, I mean, you're going to get the capital, right? So it is, but they can't necessarily um, continue to, especially when what they're getting in return is a liquid token position. You know, when their LP is redeemed, they have to sell. So like, yeah. even if they would like to stick with you for five years, they can't. Right. Do you think 2017 in crypto will be sort of compared to 1999 of the internet where there was a lot of money sloshing in space for a lot of ideas that seemed dumb at the time and then people wrote off the, the sector, but, you know, later on actually were good ideas just too early. Or how do you make comparisons to sort of the internet bubble? I can definitely see that analogy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, there, for better or worse, yes, there was uh, an overabundance of capital in the space. But, you know, it, as a result, we get to see a lot of experiments tried. Um, and, you know, as much as some of the abundance of capital was somewhat disconcerting, look, I'm always in favor of more people trying out different things in the design space. I mean, this yeah. is... I really look at this as throwing the design space of financial applications wide open. I don't think we really know what we can create yet. I mean, we can quantify um, the markets that already exist in term in financial services, but what we don't know is the markets that don't yet exist, right? Like how, how do you quantify the market for social media before you like really have Facebook? Um, so I, I think that we're going to see entirely new markets created in order to do that. You have to people, you need people trying crazy things. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was great because a lot of capital, a lot of LPs invested a lot of capital into funds that's mandate is to invest in crypto companies. So there's still a lot of money going to a lot of these experiments. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a net huge positive. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. Let's, let's talk about Bitcoin. You guys both Bitcoin guys. Uh, how is Bitcoin working its way from the fringe to mainstream? We were talking earlier about three different categories, retail, institutional enterprise, and, and the nation state. So I'll start a little bit with the nation state. And I think kind of one of the, best indicators to me that has gotten me excited 
is unfortunately these are mostly dinners where it's kind of still word of mouth, but central banks are starting to take seriously Bitcoin. And the amount of money they have to allocate is, you know, most of Bitcoin has been driven by retail uh, to date, which is an extremely important thing. But once we start getting kind of nations putting capital behind Bitcoin. And this is the opposite of the internet, which was retail last, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like I would say, if I was going to add one thing, it's from multiple people are saying they are taking this seriously. And right now, basically they hold, you know, U S dollars, buying some gold, some yuan, uh, RMB, but like any money that goes in from these banks, like that's a huge needle mover. Yeah. And what does it mean for them to be taken seriously or like, why are they taking it seriously now? And, And what does that mean in practice? I would say generally the reason people got excited about Bitcoin in general was eventually fiat currencies will fail. So what is the next thing? Gold has always been around. This is something emerging. They don't have to put that much money to work to buy Bitcoin for the potential upside. So it's, you know, the risk, risk adjusted return here. Uh, and it's one of those, I think Balaji said this, like you have to be first, or if you are first, you get like this totally, uh, massive return if this you prove correct here so i think that's by far kind of will will be the biggest driver of bitcoin and that's that's, locked up and that's fascinating i mean to think long term because you know when we think about adoption across each of those segments you know it's a little bit staggered from a timeline perspective like you said everything starts retail and then you start to see kind of this i'll call it the institutional and enterprise market start to enter um, a few years later and then you start to see like discussions like this at kind of the nation state central bank level um, that staggered off a few years behind the institutional enterprise level, right? So, you know, across all of those, what's, what's really common is that in each of those segments, the first adopters that you see are really the oddballs and the people that at first you're not sure if you want to be in the same company as them, right? So on the retail kind of side, that was like, at first started with like cypherpunks, right? And then you kind of mold into like libertarians, Um and, and then buy some drugs it, online. Right, exactly. And, and some, yeah, exactly. Uh, people participating in illicit activity online. So all these kind of like oddballs on the fringe. And then it kind of moves towards, you know, I, I'm sure most people nowadays have either considered buying Bitcoin themselves or they've heard from, you know, their parents or their uncles, aunts, family, very mainstream type audience that is now kind of aware and either owns it already or is considering purchasing some. Um, on the institutional side and enterprise side, you kind of saw a similar thing, which at first it was like weird mavericks and oddballs, you know, companies like Overstock that in theory should have no place in Bitcoin. And then as the industry has progressed, we've seen, you know, the likes of Fidelity, we've seen Square, we've seen, um, you know, much larger um, enterprise and institutional players kind of move into the space. And then on the nation state level, you know, at first you see like North Korea hacking crypto wallets and stuff like that, right? So like, again, always starts with the oddballs. And the mistake that people make is trying to predict the future through the rearview mirror, right? So they're looking back and like, okay, well, it's all these oddballs. Like, come on, like, what are the chances that this is going anywhere? Um, and one, I don't know if I really want to be in the same camp as those people. Um, but what you have to miss is, or make sure that you don't miss, is those kind of phase transitions in between where it just all of a sudden moves and leaps from one group to the next. Yeah. One thing you guys have also talked and written about is, is uh, beyond store values case, Bitcoin is programmable money. When you talk about how you see that playing out and why Bitcoin as opposed to other things that could play out for that same use case? 
Yeah, when we talk about an investment thesis for Bitcoin, I mean, we really um, hang it around kind of the store value argument, um, which is in just an extraordinarily large market. Bitcoin has demonstrable advantages relative to other store value assets. You know, typically people talk about gold, but it also includes things like um, high-end art and collectibles. Um, so really like, um, you know, people aren't buying, um, you know, really old Van Gogh paintings to hang in their house. They sit in vaults somewhere. Um, it is real estate in that? It's just, yes. And then the next one is real estate. Um, real estate's trickier because it's really hard to unbundle the store value component from the like direct consumption component, right? Because like people also, they might buy a house, but they also live in that house. So like, yes, partially it could be a store of value. And then same thing with like uh, commercial real estate, right? Like, so I can go rent it out so that I can get some cash flow from it. Um, so that one ends up being harder to separate, but also a massive, massive market. The way that you can tell that some of it, some of the real estate market, you know, aside from just high level looking at and understanding that some of it is store value, but specifically if you look in certain cities, right? So in Vancouver is notorious for having a problem with this where, um, overseas buyers were buying houses in Vancouver and they were doing nothing with them. They were not renting them. They were not living in them. It was literally just to go and put capital in a place that would enforce their property rights. Um, so typically you saw a lot of buyers coming from China, et cetera. I mean, that got so bad they had to institute an empty house tax, um, which was, hey, if you're one of these buyers, we're going to tax you at a pretty insane rate in terms of property taxes to try to discourage this behavior because it distorted the local housing market so much. So it's like small examples like that where you can really start to tease apart that there is a significant store of value component in real estate. Um, but anyway, sorry, all this to backtrack to the question of programmable money. So anyways, we hang it around the store of value, but we have this huge uncertainty around what will be the size for programmable money? Again, this is talking about creating new markets. We don't really know what the size of that is. We do know what the size of the store value market is today. Um, so, you know, slightly different than people coming in because, oh, um, scarcity and sound money, that kind of reasoning for a store value argument. For programmable money, it might just be, hey, look, this is the most efficient way to do a particular task, to accomplish something in specific. Um, and that has just a slightly different flavor to it. And we have no idea how large that market is. It could be one one hundredth the size of the store value market. It could be the same size. It could be twice as large. And I would say something interesting we're seeing now is uh, kind of as Spencer was saying before about different chains with different use cases. So you have you know Ethereum with its smart contract platform or uh, Zcash with privacy. We're starting to see the bridge because people realize the store value component is really important to get involved in other chains. So there's a project called Keep building something called TBTC, which can lock your Bitcoin into other uh, chains. So you can lock it into Zcash and you can have private transactions. You can move it right back to Bitcoin. Something that developers always get frustrated about is Bitcoin moves extremely slow. People don't want to make changes. But if you're trying to store your value, you don't want any changes to be made. You want to wake up every day, know that that is exactly the same as you kind of went to bed thinking. So I think some of these projects that are uh, doing the cross compatibility are extremely interesting and unlocks, you know, in terms of Bitcoin, we're talking orders of magnitude more in terms of trading volume, so to store a value itself in terms of price, to unlock that in other chains is huge. Yeah, one one example I like to give to highlight some of the things that you might be able to do with programmable money. Um, there was a team that had released a little prototype. It was more of just kind of a demonstration, um, but it was called Flash Lending. Um, and what it allowed you to do was to borrow from a smart contract and to return that money in the same transaction. Now, when you hear that, you're like, okay, why would I want to borrow money? It's like literally going to the bank, taking out a loan, and then repaying it like right as soon as they hand you the money. Like, why would anybody do that? Well, what they're doing was arbitraging across two different decentralized exchanges in the same transaction. So in all in one transaction, 
I borrowed money. I bought an asset at $9 at one exchange, and I sold it at $10 on another exchange. And then I returned the funds, kept my proceeds, and paid a tiny, tiny sliver of interest for the zero seconds. So like, if we zoom out, what just happened there? Well, you have a loan that's outstanding for essentially zero seconds with no counterparty risk, yet allowed the borrower to use that capital productively. Like, That's not something you could do before you have actual digital money. And you didn't have to pay someone to do it for you. Right. There's no intermediate there to incredible. take a fee. Right. And, and not to say that, you know, arbitraging decentralized exchanges is the future, but just as a um, way to kind of like stimulate your imagination here of like what people yeah. might be able to build. What, uh, say more about why Ethereum doesn't own that use case or maybe the, the, the bull or bear case for Ethereum as you see it. And, and then maybe we can also talk about for the people who disagree and perhaps are much more bullish. What's the crux of the disagreement there? Like let's steel man their, their argument for why they, they could potentially be right. For one, I'm actually, I'm not negative. I'm fairly constructive actually on Ethereum. Um, I kind of put it like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then everything else requires like an extra lens of skepticism. I don't have the same level of, of conviction in Ethereum as I do in Bitcoin, but, um, you know, the, the traction and some of the interesting projects are undeniable. Um, I certainly think that it has an opportunity to entirely capture that market, but again, it might not be in either or. Like Brayton was just highlighting, especially with being able to put, Bitcoin on top of Ethereum, like maybe there's some kind of interplay there. So I don't see it too much of as an either or, but certainly a lot of the interesting applications. Yeah, are sometimes I view it like Bitcoin is my savings account, Ethereum is my checking account, where for the most part I will keep all my money in my savings or you know whatever the store value might be. But when I want to use it or you know use the programmable money, whether I'm doing lending or uh, you know some of these decentralized exchanges, I can put money into Ethereum quickly and then move it back if I need to. I'm because of kind of the rules of Ethereum and the uncertainty around its monetary supply. You don't necessarily want to hold it there with the thought that it's going to be the same tomorrow. So I think kind of what we saw this, we saw this play out with the ICO market. The reason Ethereum kind of skyrocketed was everyone had to buy their ICOs. So they had to move money into Ethereum and the money got locked up. So that was them using it. And then we kind of saw as people started cashing out, that dried up, price came back down. So I think we're seeing that play out in kind of various ways. And are the current uh, one would be kind of maker. So people are locking up in a lot of this, these DeFi protocols. When it's being used, you actually have to lock up Ethereum. But I still think they're different use cases, uh, but they can coexist very well. You know, I, I still think that we haven't seen a lot of the potential design space on Bitcoin on this yet. So agreed that like there's a lot of the activity is happening on Ethereum right now. And we're certainly paying attention to that. So is the cross chain interplay that could happen. Also, people haven't really tried to build too much on top of it. It's unclear of exactly what you'd be able to do. But I mean, in reality, the idea that Bitcoin is in the smart contract chain is just flawed. I mean, it has multi-signature contracts and time lock contracts, which by far are the most used smart contracts that exists anywhere. So, you know, I, I still think that question's a little bit remains to be settled. Yeah. And and uh, if people haven't tried as much yet, what's going to change? Is it lightning or what, what's going to change that there will be people building on top of it? Well, so I think this comes back to kind of where I opened there talking about the five errors. So shifting from horizontal competition to vertical construction, so people building up. So the only reason why someone was going to go and launch a new chain was because they wanted to optimize for some particular parameter. There is no free lunch when it comes to building one of these public blockchains. Like I can't yeah. build something that's just as secure, but way faster or more private, but um, has better privacy, but the same scalability properties. But so I think what you're seeing now is realizing that um, most of those new chains are not that people are trying to solve that up the stack. 
All right, so they're building up the stack. Lightning Network is probably the highest profile example of that we have today, but the solution or the problem they're trying to solve was for throughput, which was Bitcoin has intentionally limited throughput, um, but I can you know zap up one layer onto the Lightning Network and I can whip my coins around instantly for almost no cost. Um, so, you know, could somebody build, you know, another layer two or a layer three or whatever we want to use in terms of parlance um, that has more expressiveness or better privacy? I, I think so. But I would say we very rarely run into the problem that Bitcoin's throughput is not enough. Mm-hmm. It's this problem we've talked about forever. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin, you know, transactions, seven per second. Really, like we haven't found the use cases to bring that much traction to the network that we're saying, OK, now we need to solve this problem. There hasn't been the pressure for as a forcing function to really try and solve it elsewhere, right? Yeah. And I would say this is some of my, you know, problems with the crypto ecosystem. It's let's theorize theorize about all these potential solutions, but we're not starting with again the what problem are we solving? Who has that problem? You know, we've been preaching unbank the you know, or bank the unbanked forever or microtransactions. For the most part, we've put them into practice and like they're not really taken off what we wanted. So I would say uh, one of the big things I try to talk to every investor and every founder is tell me one person whose life is better because of crypto and give me the name of that person because I want to call them. Yeah. You know, it's let's stop just thinking hypotheticals. Yeah. And I was going to ask you what are the interesting projects on Ethereum because you mentioned some were interesting. So I'll ask you that, but I'll also ask what are some problems that are being solved today and, and for who? So I would say still Bitcoin is solving the most uh, amount of problems. And, you know, I like to talk about. And is the person fleeing like Venezuela or something? Or like, who are they? Yeah. So usually, yeah. you know, uh, we have a founder, Sebastian, who works at a company called Ripio. Uh, and he's in Argentina. And when we backed him, he was saying, people in Argentina just want to hold Bitcoin. And I was thinking, like, you know, why would they want to do that? It's an extremely volatile currency. And his kind of response was, because people in Argentina know the peso is going to go to zero. They think maybe Bitcoin won't. And that was like pretty eye-opening to me. So I still think kind of the other countries with regulatory uncertainty, capital controls is where we're really seeing it. It's hard to kind of build a company around that because some of these are very gray areas for these companies. It's really hard because they have to kind of move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. They have to really play nicely with the regulators. So I would say that's something that we're extremely excited about. I would say... We also hear a lot of pitches of, you know, we're going to build solutions for Latin America or Africa. And, you know, my first question to most of the entrepreneurs are, are you moving there? Or when are you going to move there? And you still have a lot of people from the Bay Area who think you can build a solution for someone that you're not pretty close to. Um, So I would say if you're trying to solve these problems, you have to be there. And maybe in terms of specific problems as well. Um, I don't know how much of a, a burning problem this one is, but it was just a little bit of a revelation that came when we were chatting around the research table um, last week, um, which was realizing that Maker is basically the Brex of crypto. Um, and I'm stepping a little bit outside of like my realm of expertise, so I apologize to anyone who might be listening that works at Brex if I um, misexplain your business model. Um, but my, my understanding of it is, is you know, Brex is a basically um, credit card for startups. And they and, open up coffee shops. Yeah, fair. <laughs> and the um, realization there was that 
a lot of startups were not able to get kind of corporate credit cards because they looked and they said, okay, well, like how credit worthy are you? How much revenue you guys generate? Okay, well, we're all startups. Like we don't generate any revenue. But a lot of those companies were sitting, they just raised a $10 million Series A. So the chances that they were not going to pay off their credit cards was extraordinarily limited, right? So all it took was that little bit of insight for Brex to say like, okay, we just want to check your bank balance. And as long as I can see that you have a whole bunch of cash sitting there, don't worry, we've got you as far as credit credit cards go. So what you essentially had was a over-collateralized loan, a heavily over-collateralized loan. What is Maker? A very heavily over-collateralized loan. Um, the difference, of course, that in this case, I don't even have to go through anybody. I don't have to allow them to see it. Like I, it's literally just through a smart contract that I can borrow from. So like that in itself, I think is pretty cool. There were a lot of startups in the space that were flush on Ethereum. So they're holding a bunch of Ethereum in their treasury, but they have bills that they need to pay. Um, so they could use Maker to take out DAI and be able to have a kind of stable currency that they could go and pay employees in, pay bills in. Yeah, DAI has been a huge, like getting a lot of traction on the project front because they need to put that money to work. Totally. Uh, I would say another big one that's coming through, I don't know if you're seeing a lot of pitches in this, is acquiring Bitcoin, different ways to acquire Bitcoin Mm -hmm. from a retail perspective. Mm -hmm. So whether it's credit cards where you're getting Bitcoin back or kind of fold where you make purchases uh, through the app and they're kind of doing an arbitrage on the back end to give you Bitcoin, Lolly as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that people can get behind is they want to they want to hold Bitcoin, but they don't want to buy it. So any way to get it, which I think is great. I think that's a great distinction, but they don't want to buy it. And, and I think there's some like reputational risk because some people are like, you know, I wouldn't mind taking an option on Bitcoin, but I'm hesitant to go out and actually buy it because I don't want to be that person that bought it and then it fell 80%, yeah. right? So even though if they were spending with a credit card, and let's say instead of getting cash back, they were getting Bitcoin back, it just kind of gives them a um, lower friction way to acquire it yeah. in a way where, you know, if all of a sudden it takes off, then hey, all of a sudden that cash back that I just got, well, that just became worth way more than I ever expected it to and way more than any kind of cash back would have yeah. given me. And if honestly, if Bitcoin goes to zero, oh, well, it was just like a little bit of my cash back anyways. I never went out and actually bought any. Yeah. I think we're also starting to see one of my favorite use cases right now is uh, the domain space. So unstoppable domains or ENS, instead of sending to this crazy address, I don't know if anyone listening sends to Bitcoin or Ether addresses, it's a nightmare every time. So I can send to, you know, spencer.crypto and it's much easier to type in. And you can also attach any of your cryptocurrencies to it. So Bitcoin, Ether, Monero, Zcash, and send it to one address. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more solving those little pain points to get more people spending in that peer-to-peer way, I think is going to be uh, great for the ecosystem. Absolutely. And I mean, in general, I think we're just, we're going to see a lot more interesting experiments along those lines. Uh, I mean, really what's happened over the past few years, I think like a significant amount of onboarding, like people don't really have a strong uh, incentive to go and build atop a lot of these blockchains until there's a significant number of users, there's significant um, value kind of at stake on them. Um, so I think we've only just recently crossed that threshold over the past couple of years. And then again, people kind of launched out and they said, okay, well, we just need to launch our own new chains. Now, finally, we're in a steady state where people are developers, more and more talented developers are entering the space. I just heard a stat that I have not verified myself. So I apologize if it's incorrect that crypto or blockchain, I don't know exactly what they titled the course is the second most popular elective among Stanford computer science students. Um, so in general, I mean, there's more and more talent entering the space. Um, and there's now actually finally an incentive to actually go and build more applications on top of these things. So I think that we've barely scratched the surface of um, the types of experiments people will try. I want to see more in the DAO space, decentralized 100%. autonomous organizations. And uh, so we backed a company called Aragon. And 
you know, they presented in an interesting way, which was they were, I think, 18 and 19 at the time years old. And they said, why would we start a entity in Delaware? We are two Spanish founders. We have no idea where we're going to end up living. And we were raised on the internet. Like our jurisdiction, we live, we're internet natives. So I think a lot of kind of what you're saying about the Stanford computer science class, we're seeing this new, or it's not new, it's been kind of driving the industry for a while, but this very young generation who is internet native and they've lived and they, you know, haven't opened bank accounts. You know, we invested in someone who wasn't 18 yet and he didn't have a bank account. And on his 18th birthday, we got to open a bank account finally and do it. But I think there's going to be more experiments on these decentralized autonomous organizations uh, for people all over the world to kind of collaborate. I love the stories of kids that are too young to have a bank account that somehow started picking up crypto. And it wasn't because of any ideological belief. They didn't really care that it was crypto at all. All they knew was it was a way for them to be able to get paid. Um, so they were performing some little service online. Maybe they were doing some gig economy stuff, whatever it was. They just knew that, hey, this is an easy way for people to send me money. Yeah. yeah. Talk more about the uh, financial applications of crypto versus, versus Web3. So... This is interesting because I think people paint somewhat of a dichotomy here. You know, I guess the two versions, if I were to sit, try and state them, um, I'll do my best to kind of steel man them. One would be on the Web3 side would basically be, hey, look, Web2.0 was all the social media apps and we can give users a better deal and allow them to um, retain control of their data um, and kind of cut out this middleman that's collecting a lot of rent seeking in between. Um, I think that's, you know, conceptually interesting. I think something that could play out. Um, I think the other side of things here is the um, kind of financial application. So most of the stuff that we've been talking about so far, um, you know, Bitcoin is absolutely a financial application. It is money. Um, all the stuff that we see in quote unquote DeFi, um, those are all decentralized finance. Those are obviously financial applications. Um, so I, I tend to be, I see crypto, its genesis was Bitcoin as a financial asset and the Bitcoin blockchain as financial infrastructure. So it's only natural that the main applications that we're going to see are going to be of financial in nature. But the caveat here is that I'd say that this whole design space really blurs the lines between the two um, and that you might have some sort of kind of more Web3 type things, I guess, that would probably fall in that category. But with the main change here is really financial applications involved with it. So yeah, I would say um, one of the benefits of all the financial applications are you're exchanging money each time. So therefore it's a very easy business model. If you're running a company, you take a transaction. So again, the companies you see in the space making money, doing well, they're just taking a fee each time. The ones that kind of in the web three, maybe like the NFT world, if it's gaming or, you know, token curated registries were a thing, mm -hmm. uh, some of the storage protocols, IPFS, mm -hmm. it's very unclear. Some of the business models here, um, you know, people have presented a lot of work tokens, but I would say, again, it's still very experimental. We want to see them all work, mm -hmm. but I would totally agree that financial applications are one, the biggest, if you get decentralized money and two, the most logical based on business models. Right. And a lot of the web three stuff too. It's just, um, you know, I guess the idea would be that, you know, the users of Facebook are so irate with the way that their data has been used and what's happened there that they are desperate to flee elsewhere. But I'm not sure that that's really more than a talking point. Cause I just like really don't see very many people actually like shutting down their Facebook accounts. Maybe that's because we just don't have a good alternative. So like I'm, I'm open minded to that. But then the other angle that I kind of hear people say is like, look, the kind of ongoing deplatforming angle of things, 
The challenging thing about that is that if your first users are going to be all the people that were deplatformed from other places, like, yes, you might sympathize with one or two of them, but you probably really don't agree with 99% of them. So that's not really like a great initial user base, right? If you think about like in contrast with like LinkedIn, like originally being able to have this like really highly valued user base that it started with, or same thing with Facebook, right? Like you hacked it into like having like kind of like an elite like user base there that was like really highly valued. This is almost the opposite. This is almost like all the rejects that got kicked out of like major social media because they caused too much trouble. And then now you're going to expect them to be lures to like drag everyone on there. It just doesn't seem plausible to me. Yeah. And I think the, um, you know, maybe the U S in a lot of these areas is not the best place for some of these technologies. So I think, I don't know what year it was that in Turkey, a Wikipedia page was taken down and, you know, mm. some people put it up on IPFS mm-hmm. and it was public for anyone to view. That's cool. I think those stories are really yeah. exciting. That's cool. Um, yeah. To kind of give you, to some extent, you're getting a tool set to fight against kind of oppression or the government or whoever censorship it may yeah, be. In some way. Um, but yeah, it, it, we need more of those stories, but I don't think they're necessarily top of mind in the U S yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I want to uh, mention two general observations I've had and see how, how you react to them. One is I've, I've, there was a camp of people who were very excited about a lot of people, decentralized governance, um, and a lot of experiments that went along with it. And I, I've seen that or parts of that camp sort of evolved to, Hey, decentralizing governance is hard and maybe we should start decentralizing ownership. Uh, it'd be, and, and not on a governance layer, but on a cap distribu- distribution of capital layer. And may- maybe that's, that's the goal or, or, or one of the killer apps here. That, that's sort of one observation. I'm curious how to react to that. The other is, um, you know, Chris Dixon had this famous post, why decentralization matters, you know, a few years ago. And in it, I, I remember he, he took pains to mention, Hey, this isn't, uh, he said something like, Hey, we're not sort of, he didn't say kooks, but we're not like trying to overthrow the government here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to, um, sort of, topple the Facebook monopoly. He didn't say those words, but um, make it so that uh, he, he noticed the um, the tendency for Facebook, big platforms become misaligned with their third-party developers and users uh, as they get bigger and said, hey, this is a new model and um, decentralized internet as it should have been done the, the first time around. Uh, and it seems that that hasn't played out and actually the government use cases has been much stronger. H- how do you react to both of those generalizations or either of those? So the first one I would probably say uh, on the governance piece, totally agree that it's hard, which is why I want to see more kind of those DAOs. Um, And we just need to try more things. I think one of the problems holding startups back right now is two founders start a company and they want to try this thing. It's terrifying. Regulators are looking over them. Tax experts are looking over them. So, you know, most startups are spending 500 grand to get things out the door. Right. So I think part of that is a little unwarranted. Like they should be able to do a lot of these things still in a, you know, test case. In terms of ownership, I think that is one of the most interesting use cases. You know, we saw the demand for it by the ICOs. We saw an iteration of it with the IEOs, the exchange offerings, and we're still definitely not where we need to be. We backed a company called Fairmint that is trying to align all stakeholders by tying a token to revenue. So, you know, if I think about the venture world, not every company is venture ready, nor should be venture ready. Venture capitalists were just really good at branding venture capital, so everyone wants it. If we can get profitable companies, having being able to sell tokens to kind of the founders could get it, the employees can get it, the partners can do it. Users 
So I think aligning a token to kind of a very specific top line revenue is an experiment that I really want to see play out. Um, the problem with the ICOs is although you own something, it didn't actually tie to anything. And, you know, I'm sure Spencer says too, we probably own a bunch of tokens that I can't tell you what 100%. they tie to. Yeah. I totally agree that the ones that are being tied to a specific metric, that's one of the more interesting things in the design space, you know, would love if I could call them, um, cash flow generating tokens. Um, but most of them are not actually distributing capital back. They try and do it through kind of inadvertent means by doing, um, buying back the token and burning them. Quasi burn. Yeah. yeah so, and we'll see if those like over time as we, we see more of them play out and we have a longer data set of whether or not those two actually equate or not. But it would be really interesting if, of course, you know, I could just tie, I'm launching some new kind of exchange and I could reward a lot of my initial users by paying them X percent of revenue goes directly to um, distributions to token holders. So that would be really interesting. Um, you know, there's regulatory concerns around that that prevent it. Hence the reason why people go with the buy and burn model instead. But again, design space, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it, it, just to... So add more context to the um, governance thing. It, it, it's not just that it's hard, but maybe people are saying, hey, we don't need to decentralize all the things. Maybe, maybe some centralization is actually quite good. Maybe you know, some leaders are fantastic and maybe it's easier and on multiple levels. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a big difference when founders start out and they want to build a company. So say you're Coinbase's of the world, building on protocols or building a protocol. And we've definitely seen the centralized entity moves much faster than any of these kind of protocol companies. So if you look at something like Binance, I mean, fastest growing company of all time, I think, in terms Quite of possibly, revenue. Yeah. And then you look at Ethereum, which motive is very different. The motive is keep it up and running and shouldn't make too many changes and no one should be able to take it down. So they need to build... And, you know, talking to people at the Ethereum Foundation, it's really interesting because they want to do the exact opposite, basically, of a lot of these companies. And they want to have as many people as possible in the room to distribute kind of that responsibility and that risk. So I think a lot of times um, it's kind of like what I was saying, too, with the funds. Everyone's kind of do trying to arrange themselves to do the exact same thing. But I think protocols and companies should be run very differently from a, you know, organization. Totally. Spencer, I know you've thought quite a bit about both of you, actually. Um, how will crypto disrupt VC? How do you, how do you think about it? Well, one thing I'd posit is I think, you know, a lot of industries are propped up on regulation and I think VC is, is propped up as well. Some regulations that, uh, restrict newcomers are, uh, general solicitation. So you can't advertise at your fundraising, accredited investor. You have to be, you know, a millionaire or have a big salary over 250 K for multiple years in order to invest like cap table friction and limitations on how many people you can have on your cap table. And there's a smaller one, but GP vesting, it's harder to leave a firm when it's eight to 10 year vesting cycles. So, you know, the deregulation of those things could enable sort of new entrants to more easy, easily come into the industry. How do you think crypto will, will disrupt VC or could? Yeah, as a co I think you touched on a few of the things there. Um, I mean, for one, we've seen the potential for how it could disrupt it. The 2017 ICO mania showed what could happen, right? And that instead of going to a venture capitalist, um, you could go and crowdfund, essentially crowdfund from thousands, hundreds, thousands of people around the world. That in itself is a really interesting alternative. 
you know, when we were watching some of that play out, actually right around the time I was joining the firm, um, decided to tokenize our third fund. Um, so our third fund was a small $10 million fund. It's now, I think worth like 31 million or something like that, where we tokenized all the LP interests in it. Um, and then people could, instead of waiting eight to 10 years, um, for that capital to be returned to them, hopefully, um, they could go and sell on a secondary market if they decided for two years in, three years in that they didn't want to participate anymore. And what are the learnings from that? Is that, is that feasible? Is that scalable? So with our fourth fund, which is the one we're deploying from right now, it is a traditional venture fund. So we went back to the traditional model. It was really to try something out. It was intentionally limited in size. Um, you know, after 2017, $10 million ICO sounds very small. Um, we did that entirely, um, as a security token. Um, and so, it, you know, everyone had to be accredited investors and stuff, at least originally. And then you pass, I'm not a regulatory expert, so I'll tread very carefully here. You pass some period of time and then, um, these tokens can trade in a secondary market and other people can acquire them. So, you know, that, that's one way in terms of raising capital. Um, agreed. I mean, some of this comes back to some of the initiatives the SEC is kind of tiptoeing around right now, which is loosening, um, accredited investor, um, definition or status. Um, you know, and this treads a little bit into personal philosophy. My personal philosophy is that like everyone should be able to access these things should they want to. Um, granted, they're highly risky. I'm not saying that everyone should put capital to them, but I think that is their choice. God knows they can go off to Las Vegas or buy a bunch of lottery tickets anyways. So, you know, if people are going to make poor uses of their capital, that's, that's their choice. So I think that's certainly a step in the right direction. Um, but, you know, there could be longer term potential down the line. Yeah, I would say the thing that got me most excited about ICOs was kind of the access for everyone to invest. I think what we got wrong was thinking every individual has the information necessary to make an educated decision around whether or not that was a good investment. Um, something I've wanted to see uh, kind of just in the venture space in general, which AngelList you know, does to some extent, is you can back individuals as opposed to funds. So I think it would AngelList be- AngelList does this? Well, don't they have uh, syndicates? Oh, so like AngelList syndicates. Individual mm-hmm. investors. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, instead of- uh, you know, as Brayton investing in blockchain capital, it's Brayton investing in the Spencer syndicate. Yeah. And I think that's something I would love to see play out much more so. Yeah. Some people are excited about sort of companies looking more like co-ops mm-hmm. because if you take on that. And then also there's this sort of this generalized mining trend that was popular for, for a bit. I'm curious mm-hmm. if you guys got involved in that or where that is now. What is it? Friends don't let friends mine. Yeah, basically. Right. Yeah. I mean, anything kind of mining related, you know, I mean, again, with the firm being founded in 2013 and deploying from our fourth fund now, you know, we, we've burned our hands in the stove a fair few times on mining investments. Um, actually in our main conference room at our office, we keep a bunch of relics of a lot of the old mining companies, especially from kind of 2014, 2015 as a reminder. Um, a lot of those were like the only machines that ever made it off, uh, the manufacturing floor. Um, and very few were actually ever distributed and they would have never been profitable even if they were. Um, you know what? I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of the mining things come down to this allure of a money printing machine. It's essentially what it comes down to. And in reality, um, except for very few highly, highly specialized operators, they're money burning machines, not money printing machines. Yeah. Yeah. There's typically moments in time where if you time it right, they're great. You have some structural advantage in terms of energy access, something along those lines. Do you have a request for startups or i.e. things that you want more people to experiment on? You mentioned DAOs, for example. A- any others that come to mind where you say, hey, I'm, this, this is really intriguing. You know, we haven't seen something, I don't know, prediction markets. I don't know, something that ha- hasn't worked yet, but but uh, but it could. Uh, definitely DAOs. I would say kind of like the Ripio story earlier, 
I want to see more people targeting specific. I don't know how someone does this. But just say I'm going against the government, like saying in Argentina or anyone with capital controls, because it's somewhat, I mean, the marketing, to, it's very polarizing. I think you can make a splash, but it's, of course, very risky. Yeah. So I don't, I don't really know how to phrase that, but. Yeah, there's so many interesting. I mean, the hard thing is, again, I, and I've talked about this a few times through the, through the course of this, this interview, um, is that the design space is so wide open that really I get excited when I see people trying something that I haven't seen at all yet. Um, I am seeing a lot of interesting kind of iterations on some of the things that are working, right? So particularly if we look at the DeFi space, you know, a significant number of the deals that we're seeing that are at least quite interesting are relatively minor iterations. In some cases, they might be major iterations on on those models. Um, I think that's interesting. Um, it does get me very excited when I come across um, someone that is trying something completely new. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, like anybody, I like some of the fun things. So, I mean, you know, one of the highlights of 2019 was FOMO 3D. Um, this was not like a venture investment or anything, yeah. but it was a fun game that you could play. Can I even, I don't even know how to summarize the game, but it was a, a wacky web application where there was a pool of capital that would be distributed to the last person to contribute to that pool of capital. Um, And every time someone contributed capital, um, a timer restarted. And if it got to zero and you were the last person, you collect the capital. Um, So it was just a fun game. I mean, it was one of these like really kind of honestly, it's one of these dumb things that I think you can easily dismiss as just something dumb. But I think there's something interesting in that design space. We've seen a few people poking around. Um, None of it's really stuck. Yeah. Pool Pool together is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think kind of these, these games are kind of this, it's a massive coordination effort to convince everyone to pool in their money and make them do something. Like it's really hard to convince anyone to put money into anything. Yeah. So these experiments are like really exciting. Yeah. I mean, I forget what the total FOMO 3D pot ended up being, but it was, it was massive. We have an idea that we at on deck are in early stages of, of incubating that um, sort of takes in a couple of themes we, we've talked about right now. Um, so it's sort of this idea well, you know, uh, we're talking about generalized mining, sort of crypto moves by memes in a bunch of different ways. And when you, when you uncover a meme, I wonder if you can speculate on it. Um, basically, your domain names are an interesting example because uh, you, you can get a domain name like red.com or blue.com and know that it's going to have a lot more value yeah. in the future. You get the social status of, of owning it, plus you're speculating that it, and you're hoarding <laughs> that it's, it's going to be more valuable um, in the future. And I wonder if you could do that for for ideas, for memes. Um, in a way that looks sort of like when you were purchasing crypto, you're, you're getting in early, you think it's going to be more valuable, and you are um, speculating, basically. I think District OX has a something it, called the that... meme, meme Factory. Oh, yeah. Which they I took the, yeah. I think, Reddit meme. There, there's some specific meme yeah. that's kind of exactly what you're saying, yeah. that I think Meme Factory from District Zero X is trying to do something yeah. similar. I'd like to go to a website and see, you know, uh, generalized mining down 30% today yeah. or or this year or and not you know uh, memes that have like terms but you could also imagine like organizations or even people you know people get scared about shorting people and whatnot but just like what are what is sentiment yeah yeah i actually think that, that so it's so weird because you're right that there is this level of kind of um meme momentum around some of these kind of crypto assets yeah. which on the one hand being you know very fundamental driven investors is can be frustrating yeah. but you also have to just acknowledge the state of play as it is yeah. um and in reality when you step back it's not as weird as it first seems i mean someone much smarter than me recently pointed out 
you know, that's basically just what a brand is, right? Like a brand, a brand is a meme and people are willing to pay premiums for a brand. Um, and so now you've just literally turned that into a tradable tokenized asset. Yeah. And is it, you know, crypto kitties created some of this sort of, uh, excitement around collectibles in the sense of people had status around being early, you know, Hey, I'm the first kitty or whatever, this type of kitty, Uh, but also economic rewards for being early. And if you could take that sort of those sort of mechanics, but do it for things that really matter in the same way that I have, you know, um, collectors items about the Knicks or specific restaurants or organizations or fans or, or, you know, or whatever, could you make that digital in a way that gets exciting? I have to look into the legalities of certain things. I think domain names are interesting, how, how, um, but um, yeah. There's some art startups out yeah. there. And I've heard actually some pretty attraction numbers for some of these kind of NFT art projects. Yeah. Yeah. All cool experiments. Again, the design space is wide open. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so maybe last question. If we're here in 2023, 2024, 2025, maybe make one prediction of, of how the conversation is going to be different. Like what, what will happen? What are you expecting to happen? What needs to happen? I would say what needs to happen is when entrepreneurs are getting started or someone wants to buy Bitcoin or anyone's trying to experiment with crypto you don't have the feeling that the government's looking over your shoulder. And I would say if we're looking, you know, a few years in the future, looking back, that has to happen. Cause right now I think people are spending too much of their resources in fear. Uh, and we need kind of a playground for people to test new ideas. Cause at the end of the day, I think, uh, most people, most entrepreneurs, especially kind of this new generation entrepreneur that is young and kind of crypto internet native, they're ready to move anywhere. So if the U.S. doesn't want them, they, they're not going to stick around. Um, so that's why I say that's kind of what I, at least I hope for um, and what we'll try to help push forward. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I guess I'd say, and this is already part, partly underway, um, but that Bitcoin will be normalized by 2023, um, that it's no longer this kind of weird thing that we have to discuss separately, um, that it's just a very normal and recognized asset. Um, I think you can already see this today. I mean, one of the things I get delight from is, you know, reading a, a Bloomberg news article and it's just, you know, talking about how, um, whatever disruption in the Middle East, you know, sent gold, the S and P and Bitcoin up or down, whatever it is. And it just kind of mentions it in passing. It's not a separate dedicated article. It doesn't have to explain what Bitcoin is. It doesn't have to talk about any kind of intricacies. It's just very normalized at that point. Um, and so, you know, again, I think we're partway there. Um, I think 2023, we're, really far along that spectrum that it, it's almost not even an interesting topic to discuss separately anymore. I think it's a good place to close. My guests today have been Spencer Bogart of Blockchain Capital and Brayton Williams of Boost VC. Guys, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank Thanks. you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 